Just to get the, the context, I'd like to go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 18 and verse 21 because it's the exact same word in the original language translated slightly different in these two other verses, but it's used three times. So this is just a continuation of Paul's argument. It's not a really a new idea, but Paul's trying to establish his independence from the other apostles. And so he's using this series of events here. So he says, then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter, but I saw none of the other apostles. So he's establishing that his gospel and his message is independent from the other apostles. Verse 21, then afterwards I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea. I had no intercourse with them, no correspondence with them. And then we pick it up in chapter 2, continuing that same line of argumentation that Paul is independent, his gospel is independent from collaboration with anybody in the Jerusalem church. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. The word also is emphatic. It's a little conjunction. It can be used as and or but, and it's also here because it's an emphasis. I also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation, and I communicated to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet, and here's the same word, this time it's translated even, again for emphasis, yet not even Titus, who I also took with us, who was being with me, being a Greek was compelled was not compelled to be circumcised, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain or continue to present tense, abide, continually remain with you, but those who seemed to be. The word seemed to be is the exact same word used previously, those of reputation, and it's used three times in this context. So he's referring to the apostles as those who seemed to be, those who are of reputation, those who are of note, those who are well-known and respected those who seem to be something. It's not sarcasm. Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. God's not a respecter of persons. Literally, he does not receive the face of a man, a Hebraism. For those who seemed, there it is again, to be something, actually they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, perfect tense, something was committed and it's still Paul is entrusted with it and he's being faithful with it as the gospel for circumcision was to Peter for he who worked effectively or he who energized, it's energeo, 
the one who energized in Peter for apostleship to the circumcision, also worked or energized, worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles, miraculous power. And when James and Cephas and John, and here it is the fourth time, those who seemed to be, and they actually were, it's not sarcasm, these men were reputed, these men had reputation, they were pillars, Cephas, that's Peter, James, one of the inner circle, I'm I'm sorry, James, the brother of Jesus, and John, the brother of James, part of the inner circle of, of Peter, James, and John, and the brother of Christ here, James, they were pillars, they perceived, when they noticed, they saw the grace of God that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, koinonia, that they we would go to the Gentiles and they would go to the circumcision. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which we were eager to do. Lord God, Paul was very, very specific in the way he lived out his calling. Lord, he planned things out. He strategized. He used discretion. He used his testimony as a powerful witness of what God had done in him and through him. And it was all so that he would not labor, so that he would not run in vain. He wanted to be an effective tool in your hands. And God, that is our prayer this morning. As we study this passage of Scripture, Father God, I ask today that you will sharpen us, that we will not be a blunt instrument in your hand, God, but we will be effective and we will be successful in what you've called us to do. And we pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm talking about running in vain this morning. And we don't want to run in vain. (laughs) Anybody who's a runner wants to know that his workout or her workout was worth it, right? You don't want to get up early in the morning and say, oh, that was for nothing. Um, So running in vain, in this context, what does that actually entail? Not to run in vain. Well, in this context, Paul felt like he was being undermined and that his ministry could be overturned by some false brethren. So in this context, running in vain has the idea of somebody coming and undoing the success and the progress that he was making. And he wanted to make sure that the gospel and his ministry attained the God-given ends that it was meant for. And I think that should be every believer's desire God, what you have called me to do, what you have asked me and you have entrusted me with, I want it to succeed in the God-given ends that you declared for it. It doesn't mean that you're going to be popular. It doesn't even mean that you're going to see wonderful results. In fact, you may see meager results, but that does not imply that what you did was in vain. There's two ideas for the word vain in the English dictionary. One means meaningless and purposelessness. And that's not what Paul is using here. What he is using here, he says, I want it to be successful. I want it to accomplish what God intended for it to accomplish. 
And there's some things that Paul did that you and I can put in our lives that says, yes, it may have not been glorious, it may have not been wonderfully successful in the eyes of men, but God, it accomplished what you desired, therefore it was not in vain. There's two things outside of this context in the bigger picture of the Bible that we can say everything that we do is not in vain. One is because you and I are eternal beings and because Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. The resurrection is a reality. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because the resurrection is a reality, he says, therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is what? Not in vain. So, as a Christian... We have an eternal perspective about life. And so what we do for Christ, we know it's not in vain. But Paul had three things here that I've kind of picked out, and and there's probably more. But um, the three things that I saw as I was preparing and meditating on this is, one, Paul had a definite plan. You want to live your life in a way that God will use it to the intended ends, have a definite plan. Have a strategy. Have a goal. We're talking about soul winning. We're talking about evangelism in our Sunday school hour. And we can talk about it all we want to, and we can walk out the door this morning, and the Sunday school lesson, if we don't have a strategy, if we don't have a plan to implement it, the Sunday school class was in vain. We sat here, we listened, and we took it in, and we did nothing with it. It did not succeed in what God determined it should accomplish. Yesterday, we had a great time with the men, about 15, 16 of us in here, and Ron was up on the whiteboard, and he was writing all these things down, about four different main things that we wanted to accomplish. But at the end of it, we kind of had to say, okay, what are we going to do with this? We could have a great discussion. We could be here for three hours and eat wonderful breakfast that our wives brought for us, fixed for us, biscuits and gravy and whatever else. Jose's not here. Man, he had an awesome breakfast yesterday. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But... uh, If we didn't nail something down when we left and say, we are going to meet at this place at this time and this is what we're going to do, that would have been in vain pretty much, right? And so Paul says, I don't want to run my life in vain. I want to have a strategy and I want to have a goal. If you want to memorize scripture, have a specific verse in mind, right? That would help, wouldn't it? Have a strategy. Write it on a three-by-five card. Place it by your bedstand. Read it five times before you go to bed every evening. Write it, read it five times every morning when you get up. And I promise you, by the end of the week, you will have that verse memorized. But if you just talk about Bible memorization and you never come up with a strategy, you never come up with a goal, You never come up with any plan. It's all for naught. And Paul says, I am not going to live my Christian life that way. I'm going to live with a strategy. I'm going to live with purpose. I'm going to live with intentionality. 
After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me. That was a strategy. That was an intentional decision that I'm going to take this guy Titus with me because Titus is a Gentile. Titus is a godly man. And I want to show to these people that this guy doesn't need to be circumcised. Why is Titus such a godly man? Why is he such a wonderful church leader? It's because Jesus Christ has changed his heart. It has absolutely nothing to do with circumcision. So I'm going to take this guy with me. And Paul had a long-term goal. He says, I'm going to take this Titus, and I'm going to take him along with me on my trip because one day I'm going to prepare him for greater ministry. And he's got to know how to handle conflict. He's got to know how to get in here and get his point across without being offensive, Be doing it in a godly way, because one day Paul was going to leave Titus in Crete, and he says, I am leaving you here, Titus, so that you will stop the false teachers. You've got to be able to refute that, Titus. So Paul had a long-term goal as well. He says, I'm going to disciple this man, I'm going to train him, and I'm going to take him along with me so that he can see firsthand how we discuss differences in doctrinal issues. So Paul had a purpose here, didn't he? He was very, very purposeful in taking Titus with him. Secondly, this purpose, he was guided by the Word of God. You want to make sure that you're not running in vain, have a goal, have a purpose, be planful, be thoughtful, but do it under God's guidance. Verse 2, and I went up by revelation. This wasn't Paul's impulse. He wasn't just reacting to false teaching. He says, I'm going up by revelation, and I'm going to take this as an opportunity to discuss this matter. And then not only was he purposeful in taking Titus and going up by God's revelation, he was very, very discreet. I, I think Christians lack that today. We lack discernment, and we're not very discreet. And Paul says, I'm not going to just put this out there for everybody to listen to because then it's just going to stir up a stink. There's an old saying down in Georgia that says, if you got a bucket of manure and you got a stick and you keep stirring it up, the stink don't go away. And Paul says, I'm not going to go up to Jerusalem and just stir this thing up. I'm not going to mix the pot. I'm not going to get other people involved with this argument who know nothing about it, and drag them down in the mire and the stink. He said, I'm going to do it very discreetly. I'm going to go up to people privately, and I'm going to go to those who are of reputation. And why did he do all those things? Why did he take Titus? Why did he have this plan? Why did he wait for God's revelation to move him? Why did he strategically only tell it to those who were of reputation and did it privately? He says, I did this so that I would not run in vain. He knew it would all come unraveled if he didn't do it this way. Now, this really doesn't have a whole lot to do with my text this morning, but I'm kind of a Bible nerd, and I, I like to know exactly when all this stuff is going on. And so if you've got a study Bible, most of your study Bibles will say this was the Jerusalem Council, and, and 
I don't want to turn your apple cart over this morning, but I don't think it was the Jerusalem Council. And here's why. The Jerusalem Council was a public council. All the church was together. This was not that occasion, I don't think. He did this privately. This was quietly. It was very, very much under the radar. Second reason. Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he's using this as an argument for his gospel. If you read the account of the Jerusalem Council, after he left the Jerusalem Council, he took the decrees by the apostles and the elders, and he took it to the churches of Galatia. There would be no reason to write the book of Galatians. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Third reason, he says, I went up by revelation, and at the end of this passage, he says, you make sure that you take care of the poor. In Acts chapter 11, verse 27, Agabus the prophet comes from Jerusalem up to Antioch, and by revelation, he says, there's going to be a dearth throughout the whole world. That dearth or that famine happened in the year 46 A.D. under Claudius Caesar. So this was written very, very, very early. Paul wouldn't even have to write the. In fact, all he would have had to say is, hey, you guys at Galatia, don't you remember the decrees that I dropped off on my second missionary trip? And so I'm, I'm kind of nitpicky about stuff like this. So I, I want to nail it down. I want to get it right. And, and not that either one, you know, maybe you're convinced that this is the Jerusalem Council. That's fine. You're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I always t- thought it was the Jerusalem Council. I, I really did. But when you're starting to study it and you're starting to pick it out, you're going, wait a minute, this doesn't quite fit. So anyway, that's just a freebie for no reason. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, let, let's get back to, to the, to the text. Being discreet, being discerning, Paul communicated. What did he do when he communicated? When he communicated it, he says, I am communicating to you the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. Here's his strategy here. He says, I'm going to lay it all out before you. This Greek word to communicate is only used twice in the entire New Testament. The other time is in Acts chapter 25 and verse 14. I think it is. But what's where Paul's case that Felix is laying it, spreading it all out. He's telling everything about this guy because the next guy, the next governor, he needs to know every detail about it. And so Paul, in his discretion, he says, I'm not going to leave things out. I don't want this to come back to haunt me. You see, when you have a strategy and you want to settle things and you want to get things right, don't hold things back that are important information. They may offend somebody. They may turn somebody off, but it will come back and it will bite you. Believe me, it's happened to me because I'm sometimes not one who's going to lay everything out and put it all on the table. But Paul says, I needed to do that because this is the gospel that I preached to the Gentiles. Paul communed it privately. This was not going to be an open debate. He didn't want to stir up questions to those who were not being directly affected by it. Also, he wanted to ensure that after he left, there would be unity. Paul doesn't want to divide the church at Jerusalem. He is seeking unity of this church. So he's going to those who are of reputation. And if he could influence them and say, look, at all the church leaders, we are all on board with this. 
So that was his plan and that was his strategy. The second thing, so as not to live and to run your life in vain, point number two, live by your convictions. You compromise your convictions and you will run in vain. You will lose everything that you've gained if you don't stand for the truth. I was under conviction yesterday. There's a family that I've been witnessing to, and they are a part of a group called the Jehovah Witnesses. And Tracy and I have had them into our home, and we sat down with dinner with them, and lovely family. But when it came to the gospel and when it came to the person of Jesus Christ, I had to be explicitly clear on what the Bible says, who Jesus is. If I compromise that in any way, the whole conversation, the whole we could have been great buddies and sat around the table and sang kumbaya or whatever, but it would all been for nothing. Well, Rick Quinn happened to bump into this family about two weeks ago. I haven't seen him for about three or four years. And Rick picked up on that Irish accent, being Rick Quinn, the Irishman that he is. And he says, oh, you need to come and visit our church. Our pastor's been in Ireland for many years. And she goes, oh, was his name Patrick? Yeah, I was St. Patrick, sure enough. So anyway, they got talking, and, and he gave her the gospel. And Rick says, you know what? Maybe just send her a, uh, that family a, a text and invite them back to church. So I, I sent him a text, and it was very, very clear that she understood where our church stands on the person of Jesus. And she said, we need to follow the Bible accurately, as Paul said. And we believe that you are following it inaccurately. And that's about all she said. So I said, do I just leave it or do I respond to it? And I said, you know, I'm not trying to be popular. And at the expense of maybe offending this, this family, I thought they've already been offended anyway, so where do I have to lose? But I'm representing Christ I'm representing Jesus. So as lovingly and as nicely as I could say it, tactfully, I said, I thank God that you're studying the scriptures because in them you will have eternal life, John 5, 39. And you are absolutely right. We've got to follow the Bible accurately, as the Apostle Paul said. And then I said, and this is what Paul said about Jesus, to whom Christ came, or whom are the fathers and Christ is the eternal God, blessed forever. Amen. And if we offend Jesus, we offend God. And Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. I tell that story just to, to remind us that when we come our convictions... Just for the sake of peace and quiet, we've really lost the ball game, haven't we? And so in 3 through 5, Paul says, Not even Thomas, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I was not going to give in to pressure. Even Titus, who's a Gentile, I was not going to listen to these people putting the pressure on him. And he gives the reasons why. Because there's some times when we are to give preference to one another, aren't we? So let's, let's, let's understand all what's going on here. This is Bible doctrine. 
This is not a preference. You and I are told to surrender our preferences for the good of the body of Christ. Romans 14, 4. We're to prefer one another, putting their wants, their needs above myself when it comes to whether I eat certain kinds of food or whether I do on some, some certain kind of holidays or religious festivals or religious feasts. You know, those are preferences that, that Christendom can disagree on and yet still come together under sound doctrine. In fact, Paul took Timothy, Acts chapter 16, and Paul had Timothy circumcised. Why? Total different situation here. He says, what will advance the cause of Christ? That is the bottom line. And if he had Titus circumcised, it would not have advanced the cause of Christ. On the other hand, having Timothy circumcised, it would advance the cause of Christ because Timothy had a Jewish mother, and everybody knew it. And if they were going to listen to Timothy, they needed to have him circumcised because he would have already shut the door to any Gentile audience. They say, this guy's going to try to tell me to become a Christian, and this guy's got a Jewish mother, and he didn't even bother getting circumcised? Uh-uh, I ain't even listening to the dude. And Paul knew that. Secondly, Paul knew that if I have him circumcised, I can take him into the synagogue, and this guy can preach and teach anywhere I take him. So whatever advances the cause of Christ, and it doesn't compromise doctrinal truth, that's where you and I need to land. And that's where Paul landed here. He says, okay, I am not going to even for one minute. This is what I want to share with you this morning. Compulsion and grace are like oil and water. They don't mix. I, I wish, no, I don't. I'm tempted to say I wish I could just compel people and compulse, you know, and just say, okay, you've got, I could do that as a school teacher. I mean, you've got, to, you've got to do your lesson. You've got to memorize this verse. And I, I can enforce it, and I can give them an F if they don't do it. But you know what? I can't do that for your soul, can I? You can't do that as a parent either. You wish you could. But your kids have got to catch Jesus. They've got to want Jesus. You cannot compel anybody to do anything but grace can move their hearts to do it. And Paul says, I'm not going to mix these two. And these people who are trying to compel me to do something. In fact, you want to try to compel me to give up my Christian liberty? Try it. You know, I'll, I'll resist you. I mean, I'm stubborn. I remember when I was in divinity school. And I was required, I was compelled to wear a tie to class. And I said, I ain't wearing no tie. I'm from Louisiana Tech. Man, we, I mean, I had a holy blue jeans and, I, and you know, old ratty clothes, and I went into class, and I could learn just as good without a tie on, so I would sneak in the back of the class, and I wouldn't have my tie on. Everybody else would. And one day, the professor called me out. He says, Mr. Cross, what are you doing without your tie? I said, oh, I don't know. He says, go home and get it. Well, I was pretty slick, so I went out to my car and opened up my glove box, and I had a clip on. <laughs> I put my clip on tie and came back in. But that's the way we are, aren't we? You're told you have to do something, and our flesh ruffles up and says, I don't want to do it. But Paul is saying that I'm not going to give in to compulsion. And then secondly, he says that these people were coming in to spy on our Christian liberty. I'm not going to give in to this because their motives are impure. Don't compromise your convictions. If someone else's motives are impure, you've got nothing to gain. 
And then he says, the third thing, he says, they did this that they might bring us into bondage. Giving up your biblical convictions really does nothing but enslave you. And Paul says, we're not going there either. So live by your convictions. Never yield when truth is on the line. This is not a matter of preference, but it's a matter of doctrinal conviction. This would send a message that would mar the very character of God. If I get circumcised and I have Titus circumcised, this is going to change the very message about who God is. God is not a respecter of persons and God does not look on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And he says, I'm not going to change this because it would mar the character of God. And not only that, would it not only mar the character of God, it would change the message of grace and completely destroy it. True spirituality is a matter of the heart and not bondage. To regress from grace, to return to some kind of spirituality other than grace is slavery. Later on in the book of Galatians, he calls these other things weak and beggarly elements that have no power to transform and power to change. The future health of the Christian church was at stake right here in this chapter. Really, it was. Christianity must guard itself against systems, isms. You name it, whatever it is, we need to guard ourselves against those isms. Arminianism, Calvinism, whatever ism it is, we are not about that. We are about the Word of God only and its sufficiency. We need to guard ourselves against man's wisdom, quick, easy steps known as pragmatism. Whatever works, I'm not concerned about whatever works. I want to know what is biblical and what will be holy and what will honor God. We need to guard ourselves against the subtle enemies of rules and rituals and false humility. Any message that denies the sufficiency of grace for entrance into the kingdom of heaven and any message that denies grace as a way that we grow as Christians denies the message. The entrance into the kingdom of heaven is by faith through grace alone. Growth is by faith and grace alone. To merit people in different places, in different uh, spiritual planes, is false humility. We are all even. We're all on the same playing field. It's God who saves us. We don't want to put God to the test. Jesus is sufficient. We must reject any other message. So the third thing, in order not to run in vain is let your life consistency speak for itself. Those three things, pretty simple. Have a strategy, live by your conviction, and let your consistent life speak for itself, six through nine. Those from who, uh, but those who seemed to be something, whoever they were, it makes no difference to me, 
God shows no personal favoritism to any man, but those who seem to be something, they actually added nothing to me. On the contrary, it was Paul's life. When they saw that the gospel of circumcision had been committed to me as the gospel of circumcision to Peter, now how did they see that? How did they know that? They knew it because of verse 8. For he who worked effectively in Peter for the gospel of circumcision also worked effectively in Paul. They saw God had energized Paul. He didn't have to say anything else. They saw what God was doing. They saw the power of his message. They saw his life change. They saw his transformation. It wasn't Paul's credentials. He didn't go back and give him his resume and say, you know what, I was a persecutor of the church, and when Stephen was getting stoned to death, I was clothes, and I used to go into... It wasn't had anything to do with his past. It was what God had done right now and how he had changed him was his consistent life. They had saw what God had done. Verse 9, when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, what did they do? They perceived what? They perceived the grace that had been given to Paul. They saw the power of a transformed life. Paul didn't run in vain. He had a strategy. Paul didn't run in vain. He had biblical convictions. Paul didn't run in vain because he says, I will let my life, my ministry speak for itself. We are all on an even playing field, aren't we? We all come by grace. And every one of us who has been changed by Jesus has a testimony. Those who seem to be something, those who were well-reputed, those who were great teachers in the church at Jerusalem, what did they add to Paul? Absolutely nothing. You take the greatest pastor, the greatest Bible teacher, the greatest expositor, And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they have got nothing on you. Now, they may be able to teach you a little bit more. And Paul's saying these were people that were respected because Jesus picked them, hand-picked them. They spent three years in his school walking with him. They saw his resurrection over 40 days. They witnessed his ascension. They received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Paul didn't get in any of that. But when it came down to the gospel message. They added absolutely nothing. Your life is what counts and that Jesus Christ has changed you. The different spheres of ministry, they don't distinguish us either. Keith said, the thing that's feared most is public speaking, public teaching, And you might not be a gifted public teacher. And that might not be your your forte. But your sphere of ministry makes absolutely no difference to God. The Jewish ministry was magnified in Jerusalem. The Gentile ministry, nobody wanted it. In fact, in Acts chapter 22... When Paul was arrested for going up to the temple, he stops and he's, he's giving them this long speech. And he said, God, 
They're going to grab it because it's coming from me. They know who I am. They know that I used to persecute people. They know that I used to arrest people. They know that I used to compel people to blaspheme. And God said, no, this isn't the ministry I've got for you. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And when he said that one word, Gentiles, the whole place exploded. They started throwing dirt in the air and said, this guy is not worthy to live. Kill him. So what I'm trying to get across to you this morning is it doesn't matter what your sphere of ministry is. God doesn't distinguish that. What is important is are you faithful with what God has entrusted you to do? That's what they saw in Paul. God had put his seal of approval on Paul because of his life. And then kindly, kind of as a side note at the end of this, not to run in vain, work willingly side by side, side by side with those who you have different spheres of influence with for a common good and a common cause. We're not on different teams. You might have a different ministry, but we are all in this together. Verse 10, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Paul was recognized for his ministry and calling by those who were pillars in the church, not because of his background, not because of his resume, because he lacked that. It wasn't because of his popular ministry, because he didn't have that either. It wasn't because it was gratifying and drew people to him. It was because his work in ministry was evidently obviously empowered by God himself. Paul was faithful to discharge the responsibilities that God had given him. When we excel in whatever ministry God has given us, and when we are faithful to carry them out, others will recognize it, and our running will not in vain. When we approach life and when we approach our spiritual disciplines with a definite strategy and a definite goal in mind, we will not be running in vain. We must be guided by God's word. We must be tactful we must be purposeful, and we must be discerning. Lastly, we must be guided by biblical convictions, or else we will definitely run the race in vain. Truth cannot be compromised, because we not only mar the message, we send the wrong message. At North Valley Bible Church, we are growing group of believers. Our goal should be bringing God all the glory. Idols of men are glorified through what works. God is glorified when we do what is biblical, because whatever is biblical does the work that God intended it for. So it's not the results. It's our faithfulness 
It's our conviction and it's our wisdom that God wants us to walk through life. Let's not labor. Let's not run in vain. Father, thank you so much for this inspired bit of literature that we're able to study, that God, through the wisdom of Paul and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, gave us a detailed picture of the way Paul did ministry so that we can model it. God, there's not a one of us in this room this morning that wants to walk the Christian life in vain. God, we want to see the intended results that you had. And God, there's simple things that we can do. This morning, God, I pray that whatever you've put on people's heart, maybe it's to read the Bible through in a year. God, I pray that they'll come up with a goal. I pray that they'll come up with a strategy. God, maybe it's their goal and desire to witness to one person a week. God, give them a strategy. Put a track in their pocket. Put tracks in the glove box in the car. God, whatever it is, God, I pray that we won't even hear this message in vain, but God, we'll walk out with a strategy to do something, to memorize scripture, to be in church more often, to be at fellowship nights when we have it in the homes. God, whatever it is, God, give us a goal, give us an attendant in, and then, Lord God, I pray that as we study the Word of God, that you would write it on the fleshly tablets of our heart, that, God, that we would boldly proclaim it, we wouldn't give in to pressure, we wouldn't give in to the, the society around us that calls us fundamental fanatics because we believe in the death and burial of pres- and the resurrection of Jesus and that salvation is only in his name. God, I pray that we would never compromise just for the sake of expediency. And Lord God, may our lives be so empowered by you that those who are reputation, those who are leaders, may they embrace what we are doing and say, yes, we recognize that God indeed is working in your life. God, this is our prayer this morning to glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.